0: and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. Well, Good Friday sort of comes early for us this year, as today in the Nicene Creed we are introduced to what we call the Passion of Christ. Now I know that for most of us, when you hear the term the Passion of Christ, you probably think of a movie uh, directed and produced by Mel Gibson. But to describe Jesus' crucifixion as his Passion is actually quite ancient. As a matter of fact, it goes all the way back to the Nicene Creed. In the Creed, we affirm that he was crucified for us and that he suffered. And that word suffering in the Greek is the word passus, from which we get many English words like passive, pathos, and passion. So uh, ancient English, the word passion was essentially, not quite, but essentially synonymous with suffering. And so technically speaking, Christ's passion is his entire life. His birth, his life, and his death. Because when you're the son of God, to become creature, to become human, to become, as we just sang, a man of sorrows, a servant, is in and of itself a form of humiliation, unbecoming of who you are. It is a form of suffering. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief his entire life. So really, Jesus' entire life up until the point of his resurrection can be thought of as his passion. But no doubt, when we think of the passion, we ought to think primarily and chiefly of that great and paradoxically horrible moment when he was crucified on a Roman cross. Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah the prophet? The prophet Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We are going to read this whole chapter together for our sermon text this morning. Isaiah is one of the major prophets, which literally just means the book is long. Isaiah had a lot to say. Isaiah chapter 53. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears silent, so he opened up not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, similar to last week, the little section of the creed that we're examining today really has two elements to it. Historical and theological. Right, Much of the sentence that we're examining is, just, in a certain sense, just pure, brute, historical fact. Right, Namely, that a man from Nazareth named Jesus was crucified and buried under the authority of Pontius Pilate. In, in the first century, keep in mind, the... What we think of as the state of Israel was under a Roman occupation. Rome had come in and overtaken them, and they were under the jurisdiction now of the Roman government. And so Rome, in their occupation, was able to limit the Jews in how they not only lived their lives, but even how they practiced their religion. And one of the things that Rome took away from the Jews was an Old Testament um, privilege that they had, well, privilege, obligation, um, to commit capital punishment, to stone people to death. Now, uh, the government took that away. If you wanted to kill someone, Rome was now in charge of capital punishment. The Jews couldn't kill people anymore. And so, in order for the Jews to get Christ murdered, uh, there were times they were so angry, they were willing to risk, risk it. Like, they were gonna, they'll, they'll just stone Jesus and deal with Rome afterward. But the, really, the way they needed to go about it was to get Rome involved. And the creed involves that they did. That the Jews were able to convince the Roman authority, the governor of their section, to perform capital punishment on Jesus. And the man who had that authority over the Israelites in the first century was a man named, Pont, was a man named Pilate. He was the Pontius, which is basically like a governor. Now, I decided for time's sake um, to not go to the Gospels and look at the history. I'm just going to take it for granted that you agree with me that it's very, very easy to see from Scripture that Jesus was in fact crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was buried on the same day. Now, if if you don't, believe me, if you don't take that for granted, that's okay. Just read any of the crucifixion accounts from the Gospels. They're all very clear. My personal favorite one would be John chapter 19, because there you will see Jesus and Pilate in their trial. You will see Jesus, like we just read in Isaiah, silent. Well, actually, that came with the Jewish leaders. But nonetheless, you will see Jesus' trial, where Pilate tries him. You will see Pilate flog him. And you see Pilate's soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head and torture him and mock him. You will see Pilate declare him innocent, but then cower from the pressure of the Jews and hand him over for death anyway. You will see the Romans crucify Jesus, and then you will see this really touching story of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who was actually beginning to believe in Jesus, but hadn't let anybody know that yet, secretly approach Pilate and ask for permission to take Jesus off the cross. Because Jesus was killed on a Friday, and it was against Israelite law to bury on the Sabbath. So he wanted to get Jesus buried before the Sabbath, and Pilate gave him that permission. So you find just in John chapter 19, Pilate handing Jesus over to be crucified, Jesus being crucified, and Jesus being buried. This is historical eyewitness accounts of a historical fact that we believe. Our religion is not purely philosophy. It's not purely ancient tales. Our religion is a historical religion. We confess something that happened in history under Roman occupation in the first century. But our religion is also theological. And the creed here is actually being theological. And you can find the theology in those two little words, For us. Right? We do not just confess that Christ was crucified. He was crucified with intention, with purpose, for a reason. He was crucified for us. We're confessing, in other words, that His crucifixion was not just merely a, a happenstance of history. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just a thing that happened to Jesus. It was a theological, intentional Moment. As a matter of fact, we're not even looking at a complete sentence in the creed. This is actually part of the beginning of the article on Christ, which says, for us men and for our salvation. And then it goes on to list the different things he did for our salvation. And we saw last week that he was incarnate for our salvation, but that wasn't enough to save us. He also was crucified for our salvation. This is very much a theological statement as well as a historical one. And so as I said, rather than look at the history, I want us to spend the little and precious time that we have today focusing on the theology. Not just looking at the fact that Jesus was crucified, but why. How was his death for us? What does that mean? When we say his death is for me, his death is for us, what does that mean and how does it bring salvation? That's what I want us to focus on today. And we're going to answer both of those questions with one word each. So let's begin with, how was his death for us? What does that mean? And the answer to that question is that Jesus' death was vicarious. Jesus' death was vicarious. Go back to Isaiah 53, and let's let this prophet who is prophesying of the coming crucifixion. Let's let the prophet tell us about Jesus' vicarious Death. Look at verses 4 through 9 with me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The prophet here, I argue, is teaching us that Jesus's death is vicarious. Now that's one of those words that probably sounds more complicated than it actually is because we don't really use it In our language, although we will sometimes, parents, for example, will be described as trying to live vicariously through their children. You've ever heard that phrase? The word vicarious simply means in place of another, it can mean through another, but it primarily means in place of another. Vicarious is just a word for it's just another word for substitute, right? Like a substitute teacher will teach in place of the real teacher. Vicarious just means in the place of another. And this, this concept that Jesus' death was done in someone else's place, the idea being he didn't deserve the death, someone else did, but he took it for them. That's all throughout the chapter, but I think it's especially highlighted in the verses that we just looked at. All throughout these verses that we just read, we saw this comparison between our transgressions and his piercing. He was crushed for our iniquities. So we have iniquities that deserve a crushing, but he took the crushing. They're not his iniquities, but they are his crushing. Our chastisement was upon him. And that's why we have peace. By his wounds, we are healed. We could go on and on. Do you see the substitutionary language, the vicarious nature of Jesus' death? He died the death that we deserve. He did this in our place. I, I, I especially love the way it's put so bluntly at the, in verse 12 at the very end. Look at verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's that word, that word intercession. He's literally standing in the gap. He's standing in our stead. So much so that he's actually bearing our sins. Our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions. All those words that this chapter used were in him. He took them upon himself. In short, Christ freely elected himself to become the covenant head of God's sinful people. And he willingly took accountability for their sins as if they were his own. That's vicarious redemption. That's substitutionary atonement. He took our sins upon himself and he stood in our place. The righteous man standing in the place of a sinner. Now you might ask that question, how does a person take sins onto himself? The fancy theological word we use for this is the word imputation. The concept of imputation. Our sins were imputed to Christ. They were laid upon him so much so that the scriptures can metaphorically speak of him bearing them. They have been metaphorically put on his back. They've been put into his body. Our sins have been imputed or transferred into our substitute, so that he is now taking responsibility for them. Now, there are many people who do not like to speak this way. Because what did we just read? I mean, he is not a sinner. There was no deceit, no iniquity, no violence. There was nothing. He was a perfect man. He was, for goodness sake, God's son. And isn't it the height of all blasphemy to speak of God's son as actually having sins imputed to him? He actually has sins on his record, sins being put into him. Isn't that the height of blasphemy? And I submit to you, it's not. Because it's not just Isaiah who says this. This is a New Testament teaching. Paul actually takes it a step further. Listen to how Paul says in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul calls the Son of God a curse. He became a curse so that we wouldn't have to. We have been freed... From the condemnation of the law that we deserved because Christ became our curse. It gets even more explicit from the Apostle Paul. Notice how he says it in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's your substitution, here's your imputation. But notice, how does the Apostle Paul, what does he call Jesus? He calls Jesus a name in this text. What does he call him? Sin. Jesus is sin. God made him sin. But he clarifies. It's not his own personal sins. He knew no sin. He's not a sinner. He's righteous. He's holy. But the Holy One, the one who did not know sin, became sin. And what are the consequences of sin being imputed to him. Such so that he could be called sin itself. He is a curse. He is a sin. He's the sin bearer. And what happens to all the people who gave him those sins? What are we called in this text? The righteousness of God. He is sin. We are righteousness. Yet he knew no sin. This is the language of imputation. He didn't like literally physically become a sinner. He didn't become a wicked man. God forbid. But legally... Covenantally, he took the responsibility of sins upon himself. He took the curse of the law upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. We are now righteous in God's sight because our curse and our sins have been dealt with by someone else. That's substitution. That's vicarious redemption. That's what we mean when we say that he died for us. We're saying he died in our place. But I think that still deserves a little bit of explanation. To to simply say he he died in my place doesn't fully answer the question, well, how does that save me? That's what it means to be for us, but how is that for our salvation? And that brings us to point number two. Another word that's going to sound fancy, but it's really quite simple. Number one, Jesus' death was vicarious. Number two, Jesus' death was expiatory. E-X-P-I-A-T-O-R-Y, expiatory. But again, That's just a theological term that's been used. It's really quite simple. To expiate sins simply means to cancel them. It means to put them away. When Christ died for our sins, his death served as a sufficient payment, so to speak, so that they could go away, that they could be dismissed. Maybe the better way to think about it, so that they could be forgiven. The Apostle Paul uses this phrase, setting them aside and The portion that we read during our confession of sin from Colossians 2. Or forgive me, I got my slides out of order here. Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, how has God forgiven us? What's the basis of being able to forgive us of our sins? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So when we talk about Christ as a sinner, we're talking about it in a legal sense, not a real sense. He's, he knew no sin, but legally he bears responsibility because the, the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. How did he set it aside? How did he expiate our legal debt? How did he expiate our sins? He nailed them to the cross. Your record of debt has been canceled. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been expiated because they were put into Christ and they were nailed to the cross with Him. He died for your sins. He took your place. By His suffering and death, our sins have been expiated. And this is abundantly clear in our passage from Isaiah. You don't have to turn to Colossians. And we see that because the text doesn't just speak of Christ taking our sins, our transgressions upon himself, the text is very clear. He takes the punishment of those sins. Right? He doesn't just get the sins. He gets the punishment that is due those sins. Right? We read in, 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 those, cha- in those verses that we read, we read words like smitten, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds, oppression. He took Not just the sins, but the consequences. He bore the consequences of those sins. That's why we say that they were expiated. But one of my favorite ways that Isaiah speaks of the expiation of his sins is by speaking of God as being satisfied. We know our sins have been expiated because God has been satisfied. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. Their iniquities. As this text says, Christ laid down his life as an offering for guilt. It goes on to describe him essentially as as fulfilling the Old Testament sacrifices, that he became the offering by which the sins of God's people. The guilt of God's people has been imputed. He bears the iniquity of sinners. And then what happens when he bears those iniquities? What happens when when he is anguished? When he pours out his life unto death? God sees it and is satisfied. It is a satisfaction. What I'm trying to get at here is I'm trying to remind everyone in this room that when we sin, God is the one who is offended by that. And I don't mean the term offended like emotionally, like you've offended me for my feelings. I mean in the legal sense. We have broken God's laws. This is why David in Psalm 51, after murdering his best friend and committing adultery with another woman, in Psalm 51 could say, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. We don't truly sin against other people. We sin against God. God is the one who is offended when we are sinned. And guess what that means? He's the one then who needs to be satisfied. He's the one who is due. He's the one who is owed recompense when we offend and break his law. God is the one who needs to be satisfied. His justice and his holiness demands that he take towards guilty sinners a disposition of wrath and anger. And so something needs to happen for that wrath to be satisfied, for that justice to be satisfied, for that anger to go away. And Isaiah is making it very, very clear that for believers, for us who are in Christ, it is his death that makes God satisfied. I am pleased now. My wrath is gone. My anger is gone. My justice has been satisfied. this is why we speak of the death of Christ as expiatory. He has satisfied our debt, He has made our sins go away. The cross is in Jesus' substitutionary death that satisfied let me put it this way, this is what the cross is for us. If you want to know what is the cross for me? The cross of Christ is a substitutionary death that satisfied God's wrath against your sin. Let me say it again. The cross of Christ is a substitutionary death that satisfies God's wrath against our sin. To put it bluntly, the cross is where you find your forgiveness. The cross is where we're forgiven. He died for us and for our salvation. Now, I would love to end the sermon 24 minutes in. But we have a problem on our hands. And that is this doctrine that I just gave to you, that I believe Isaiah gave to us, is unfortunately not only not believed by everyone who calls himself a Christian, it's actually become the minority report in the Christian world today. Most people around the world who refer to themselves as Christians deny the doctrine that I just taught you, which oftentimes goes by the word substitutionary atonement or vicarious redemption, same thing. And so they have to sort of interpret the for us and the creed in a different way to avoid believing in a Jesus who died the death of his people in their stead to appease God's justice. Now, I cannot give you an exhaustive list as to every single group and every single person and why they all reject it, but I think I can give you the two primary reasons that I've encountered, and I want to show you why they're, they're, they're bad reasons to object to this doctrine. The first objection you will often hear is that our doctrine destroys the Trinity. It destroys the Trinity. Because the suggestion is that if Christ is absorbing the Father's wrath, the curse of the law, then that means that the Father is pouring out His wrath on the Son, which means that the Father hates His Son. The Father has had to turn against His Son. And we can't have that in the Trinity. There is a perfect, indissoluble communion and union between the persons of the Godhead. They can't hate each other. But if Christ becomes the sin bearer and God pours out His wrath on Christ... We have now disrupted their fellowship and we've broken that fellowship and that just simply cannot be. That is blasphemy of all blasphemies. But I want to assure you that that just simply is not the logical outflow of what we're teaching. It's just simply not required to believe. The fact remains that Jesus, first and foremost, he willingly laid down his life. He tells us in John over and over again, I'm I'm glad and willing to accept my father's counsel. It wasn't like, like they went rogue or the father dragged him to a sacrificial altar or something like that. He willingly laid down his life. And thus this was a, a sacrifice that made God glad and well pleased. As a matter of fact, John Calvin is oftentimes accused, slandered, as being the person who invented vicarious redemption. And notice the the person who allegedly invented vicarious redemption went out of his way to deny this very charge. He says this... After speaking of how Christ essentially went through hell on the cross, took on the wrath of God for sin, he clarifies it. We do not, however, insinuate that God was ever hostile or angry with his Son. How could he be angry with the beloved Son with whom his soul was well pleased? Or how could he have appeased the Father by his intercession for others if he were hostile to himself? But this we say, that he bore the weight of divine anger that, smitten and afflicted, he experienced all the signs of an angry and avenging God. The idea is that what Christ went through would be the equivalent of a sinner being judged by God. But it does not entail that Christ was actually being judged by God. He just went through the stages that we would need to go through. But God never turned his face from the Son. God never forsook the Son. God was always with the Son and well pleased. To, To speak in a human language, you could even make the argument that the crucifixion is the moment when God was most pleased with his Son. And, and it, but, but we don't even have to just talk philosophy, because I argue that this objection can be turned against them. This, this absolute fear, this phobia to, in any way, shape, or form, make the father as having a role in the crucifixion, the father pouring out wrath or judging the son or, or whatever it might be, they are allergic to not only what Isaiah actually says in this text, but to what many of the apostles say about it as well. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 10. This is, this is fascinating stuff in verse 10 here. We cannot scoot by this quickly. After speaking about all of these sinful people, Crushing Christ, chastising Christ, piercing Christ, judging him falsely, lying about him, all of these wicked things. What does he say in verse 10? Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Here we read, it was actually the father's will that the son would be crushed. And it doesn't just say it's his will. He has put him to grief. Who's the he there? Father. The Father put the Son to this grief. The Father willed his crushing. And this is good news. They say, Oh, I don't know if I would have spoken like that. Well, you should, because it's good news. You know why it's good news? Because this is our reminder that the crucifixion had intent behind it, the crucifixion had meaning. The crucifixion had a purpose. Like we said, it wasn't just an accident that God said, you know what? I think I might know how to make this work, actually. There was purpose in it, there was meaning in it. It wasn't just some happenstance of history. God intended it to happen, He willed it to happen. He even brought it about. This is exactly what Peter told his fellow Jews. In Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter's not denying that the crucifixion was an evil thing. Lawless evil men acted wickedly. Yet, in their wickedness, they were accomplishing God's plan A. Not a backup plan. He didn't fix a broken situation. They were accomplishing the plan of God. Isaiah and Peter are trying to remind us that God works his plans and his purposes even through evil men. Evil not only cannot thwart the purposes of God, evil is actually used by God to accomplish his purposes. They assist the purposes of God. He planned the death of Christ, and he used lawless and evil men to get his plan accomplished. And I would argue that this fact, this great sovereignty of God, is really symbolized in the creed accidentally by bringing up Pilate. Right? It's, I've always found it kind of strange that we have to confess Pilate's name every time we say the creed. Like, he's a bad guy. I don't, I don't want to enshrine his name in the greatest creed ever written for all of history. Why does Pilate get a role in the creed, right? But it's an important reminder, not just that this is a historical event, but every time we remember that he was crucified under the authority of an evil man, For our salvation, we need to remind ourselves of how God is accomplishing his purposes even through and with the evil around us. Pilate cannot thwart the plans of God. All he can do is accomplish them. The early church, by the way, confessed this later on in the book of Acts in one of their great prayers together. This is what they said. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here, all the evil intentions of men, which led to Christ's murder, are stated. Herod was crazy, cruel, and lazy. Pilate was evil and cowardly. The Jews were bloodthirsty and hard-hearted. And the Gentiles were violent and ambivalent to justice. All of these people were involved in crucifying Christ and all of them were wicked. And yet, what did these wicked, evil men do? Exactly what God planned, exactly what God predestined, what His hand accomplished. The Bible is very comfortable assigning to God an active role in Jesus' death. God willed it. God put him to grief. God planned it. God predestined it. It pleased the Lord to crush his son. So let me ask you this question rhetorically. Why is it okay for the Bible to speak this way and not be accused of destroying the Trinity, but we can't? Does does Isaiah destroy the Trinity when he says it was the will of the Lord to crush him? He has put him to grief. Does Peter destroy the Trinity when he says that God predestined and foreknew the cross? Does the early church destroy the Trinity when they say that it was God's hand that accomplished the cross? No, of course not. There is no disruption in the Trinitarian fellowship when we affirm that Christ, not as an individual person, but as a covenantal, legal, responsive head, bore our sins and died for our sins. He was being judged as a corporate representative, not as an individual. There is no disruption in the Trinity but there's another objection that we need to deal with the other objection which comes from an entirely different camp of people is this basic assertion that God simply doesn't need a sacrifice to be appeased right isn't it only the pagan deities who require child sacrifice for their gods to be appeased is God a pagan deity who needs to sacrifice children to be appeased that's pagan that's not Christian And they'll say things like, you and I forgive one another without sacrifice. If you offend me, I don't make you go kill somebody. I just forgive you. That's love. That's what God does. He just forgives us. He doesn't require justice. He doesn't require a sacrifice. He just forgives us. Now, I, I would just simply say, to be simple, that you just can't read Isaiah 53 that way. Isaiah, the whole, what's the refutation of that? The whole chapter we studied today. That's the refutation. Isaiah 53 is very, very clear that there was a chastisement, a smiting, an affliction, a crushing, a piercing, et cetera, et cetera, that was required for the many to be accounted righteous. And Isaiah even describes him as a lamb, as a sheep, which is alluding us to the Old Testament system, which made very, very clear that God doesn't just forgive. The whole Old Testament system was built upon needing a sacrifice for the guilt of the people to go away, which is why the author of Hebrews, when talking about Christ in the Old Testament sacrifice, goes to say this, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Does that sound like God? He just forgives us. No blood, no forgiveness. No death, no justice, no forgiveness. It is just simply not true that Christ or for me, that God can just forgive. And I, but I want us to see the why. Why is this the case? So turn with me to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. We're going to look at verses twenty-three through twenty-six together. Romans 3, verse 23 through 26. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are two very important things that stand out here. First, in Romans chapter 3, in verse 24, Christ is described, or forgive me, in verse 25, he is described as his blood being a propitiation You want to know what the word propitiation means? Appeasement. So this idea that God doesn't need appeasement is just flatly unbiblical. The word propitiate means to appease. It means to turn away. God had wrath. The wrath of God abides upon us and it's the blood of Christ, which is just a symbol for his death. It is Christ's death that turns that wrath away, that appeases that wrath, that sends it away. God has no more wrath for you because you're covered in the blood. The blood appeases his justice. So they're simply wrong. But Paul doesn't just tell us that God needs an appeasement. He tells us why. And he says in the last verse that we read, that he might be just and the justifier. In other words, this objection that God, he just doesn't need a sacrifice, it completely fails to understand who God is. It completely fails to understand the holiness and the justice of God. Judges in a courtroom don't just let people go. That's not good, that's unjust. It would be unjust for a holy, righteous judge of the universe to just let us go. Because he's just. So yes, he does require appeasement. But we have a problem. He's also merciful. He's also merciful. So what's God going to do? He has sinners in front of him who his mercy wants to pardon but his justice can't. And in comes the gospel. In Christ, God has found a way to get both things. He is just. His justice has been satisfied. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. Boys will be boys. He doesn't just forget it. Justice has been met. Sins have been paid for. He is just. Yet, He has been merciful. He has made us just. He has made us righteous. He is both just and the justifier. He is both good and merciful. That's what the cross does. When you take the cross away, you might have a merciful God, but you don't have a good one. You don't have a just one. You take the cross away, you might have a just God. Send everyone to hell that's just, but there's no justifier there. There's no mercy there. Our gospel gives God both, just and justifier. So it is simply unbiblical and unholy to suggest that God can just forgive us. He's just, and therefore justice demands satisfaction, but He's merciful, and Christ is merciful. So Christ says, I'll take that satisfaction part. All of this, really, we can end and summarize with an ancient letter. The date is not known, but this is well before the Council of Nicaea. Known as the Epistle of Diognetus. We're going to let the Epistle to Diognetus summarize and end us out. This is what it says. One of our brothers in the faith from many, many years ago put it this way. But when our unrighteousness was fulfilled, and had been made perfectly clear that its wages, punishment, and death, were to be expected... Then the season arrived during which God had decided to reveal at last His goodness and power. Oh, the surpassing love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, He was patient and forbearing. In His mercy, He took upon Himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have possibly covered our sins? In whom else was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners.